Back in 1939, there was an event that took place that was a cinematic milestone. It was the very first time that a majority of the people who attended theaters saw a movie in color. There had been other productions in color, in fact, all the way back into 1935, but this particular movie became a little more popular. It was not a box office success. But those that went to that movie saw something that most of them had never seen before. And that was they saw a movie in color. Those that produced the movie wanted to shock the audience. And so they did so in a very unique way. They began the movie in basically black and white tones. It's not really black and white. It's kind of a brownish. It's, 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 it was actually done in color, but it was done just in sort of brown and tans and things like that. And then all of a sudden, to make the point that things had changed, that everything was new, the movie suddenly switched to color. Some of you know what movie it is. See if you remember this. Anymore. Of course, you know the movie is The Wizard of Oz. Do you ever wonder why they spend so much time panning? It was almost a minute of panning. That's a long time in a movie. In fact, if you watch it now, we kind of say, well, come on, move along. But not then. For suddenly they were looking at something they'd never seen before. And that pan was deliberate. The, the slowness was to say, things have changed. Look how wonderful this is. We look at that color and say, eh. But not then. Do you know it took them two months to just determine what color the yellow brick road would be? They knew it would be yellow. But as to exactly what color yellow, 
Do you know the ruby red slippers? Originally not ruby red. They were diamond colored. But because the technicolor would look cooler with ruby red, they chose ruby red. And the audiences were overwhelmed. But you know, the Wizard of Oz wasn't all that popular at first. And then beginning in 1956, something changed. It was re-released in 1949. It was re-released again in 1955. But then in 1956, they began to do something that made The Wizard of Oz probably one of the most seen movies in all of history. You know what they did? In 1956, they started televising it on television. And growing up, I remember every year the excitement of watching The Wizard of Oz. The terror of the flying monkeys. The joy at, I'm melting, I'm melting. But there's an irony. Because in 1956, less than 2% of the population had colored televisions. And so everybody or not everybody, just about everybody, was watching this technicolor advancement, this, this amazing newness that was taking place, the fact that we're not in Kansas anymore. They were watching it on a black and white TV. Totally missed the full impact of what the movie makers were trying to say. Everything's new. We've been working our way through the book of Luke and we've been working our way through the journey of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, makes his way to the cross, to the grave, resurrection, and the ascension on the Mount of Olives. And we've been doing it as Luke wants us to see it. Each of the gospel writers has a little different perspective. And Luke's perspective is very much that sense of newness. And asking us all the way through his gospel, and particularly in these last several chapters, how are you going to respond to this? Luke begins by saying, a new king has come. His birth is royal, but not in the way we expect. What do you do with that? Then he deals with the initial ministry of Jesus. And the whole question is, who is this Jesus? Who is this one? And Luke builds to that point when you come to the high point in Luke chapter 9. When the answer is, this is the Christ. And then there's the question, who do you say that I am? Then from that point on, Jesus, I mean, Luke writes and presents Jesus as declaring a new way to God, a, a new way, a new kingdom, a, a new way to relate to him. The question becomes, will you accept that? And then in the few chapters between when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and when he is tried before 
the Sanhedrin and the Roman court. Jesus is presented Luke through Luke over and over again with the question of what are you going to do? First it was, what are you going to do with this new king? Will you reject him like the religious leaders? Or will you accept him like the disciples? Then it became, what are you going to do with this new way of worshiping God? That put away the old, that, that has an, a new aspect to it, that, that requires not what was part of the old covenant, but is now the new covenant and the new way to come to God. And, and it ends with the question, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond like those who sought to kill him? Or are you going to choose to follow him? This morning, as we look at Luke, Luke presents to us the new covenant. The new way of relating and coming to God. And Luke will place us in the position to ask, will you receive him or you'll reject him? The question is asked by the bookends of this. Let me teach you a, a word. This is a pericope. It means a story, a, a part of the, the whole, this little section. Well, this little section begins with Judas planning to betray Jesus. And it ends with Judas going out and betraying him. And Luke is going to ask the question, are you a Judas in response to Jesus? Or are you a disciple? What are you going to do with this new way of relating to God? And so what Luke does is he proclaims to us in this event, this, we call it the upper, the upper room, we call it the, the Last Supper, we call it that, that time in which communion and the bread and the, and the cup are initiated by Jesus and they're ordained for us to continue as a church. And what Jesus says in that event and what Luke records is that the sacrifice symbolized in that bread and cup forever changes how we interact with God. You see, in a sense, when you get to the end of the meal, Jesus has said, we're not in Kansas anymore. Everything has changed. The way we're to see our relationship with God, the way we're to see how we come to God, the the way we see our interaction with God, It's totally changed. We don't live under the old black and white. We're now to live in technicolor. To push the analogy. Now as you come to the passage in Luke, and if you have your Bibles, turn there to Luke chapter 22. Luke begins by wanting us to know something very Very important. What Luke wants us to understand... Oh, I did lose a page. What Luke wants us to understand is that what we are dealing with is a Passover meal. 
And as he begins to address this, he wants us to understand that this Last Supper, this time that Jesus is interacting, the, the time that, that he initiated what we normally do on the first Sunday, and, and you know, maybe this would have been a better message last week when it was sort of Communion Sunday. But what he wants us to understand is that this was initially a Passover meal. It's sort of like the beginning of the Wizard of Oz when you were in black and white and you don't quite know what's going to happen, but things just seem normal. Just a normal Passover meal. Until the door opens. And Jesus says, nope. All things are new. And as you begin to read this section, as you begin to read just after, it talks about the fact that Judas had figured out a way to betray the Lord and they were looking for a way to arrest him. It says in chapter 22 and verse 7, Luke begins this section by saying, The day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, that's this day. And over And over, and over, and over. Yes, I'm trying to make a point. Luke mentions the fact that this is a Passover meal. That this is a Jewish meal remembering the initial deliverance of God of the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. When the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorpost and on the, on the, above the door. And that as a result of that, the angel of death would pass by. And it became the means by which God led the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the desert. And established his new covenant with them. And for thousands of years, the nation remembered. And remembered. And remembered. Now when you come to the Passover. The Passover meal. The, the Jewish meal. Christianity has its roots in, 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 in Judaism. We, we understand that. The Passover meal contains symbols. Representing the significance of the exodus. And the establishment of the old covenant. They did things. And all the way through as they did them. There was a significance behind it. They did it for a purpose. One of the commentaries that I was using in in studying this. the The New American Commentary series. Just says it this way. The Passover lamb reminded them of the blood of the lamb smeared on the door lentils in order to escape the visitation of the angel of death. There was a reason they ate lamb that day. The unleavened bread reminded them of the swiftness of their redemption and that there was no time to, break, to bake bread. It happened so fast. One day they were slaves, the next day they were free. The bowl of salt water in which herbs 
were dipped, the bitter herbs. They, they would take them. And if you've ever been at a Seder meal, you, you take the, the bitter herbs and you put them in the salt water. And the bowl of salt water reminded them of the tears of their captivity, the bitter herbs of the bitterness of their slavery. They had a paste. It's a fruit paste that you eat. On that day, they remind them of the bricks that they made during their bondage. And then there were three, sometimes four, cups of wine that were a part of this extended meal that reminded them of the promises. One right after another that God gave in Exodus chapter 6. And they would explain that. Every time you did Passover, like when we do communion, you explain the lamb is there for this. The bitter herbs are there for this. The salt water is there for this. The, the, the fruit paste is there for this. To be reminded. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus takes the position of the head of the household, like a father, and he leads them through. In fact, when you look at it, the, the characteristics and the order of this Passover meal, of eating this Paschal lamb, is exactly what you expect in a Passover meal. Mark and Matthew and John don't focus so much on that, but Luke does. Because remember, his whole theme is something new has come. What are you going to do? And so as you read through Luke over and over again, you, you get the sense of, oh, okay, it's a Passover. Oh, it's okay, it's a Passover. If I said to you, we just sat down for a meal, and we had a little time going around the table, and everyone sort of gave thanks for the things that they had enjoyed this year, and then we brought out and we had some turkey and we had some stuffing and we had some cranberry sauce and we, you know, we had pumpkin pie for dessert. Everyone here went, would go, oh, it's Thanksgiving meal. That's exactly what Luke does. He says, look at this, look at this, look at this. And so he goes through the... It was an evening meal, and, and we understand that, particularly in Mark and here in Luke a little bit, that, that it's late into the night. It's an evening meal. Usually, you ate your meal in the afternoon. Kind of the, the early bird specials you get at the restaurants when all of us who are over 60 go and have our meals. That's when the people of Israel ate their meals. I know some of you are saying, I'm over 60. I don't do that. But that's when they would eat, not this one. Something special about this one. It was eaten in the evening. The meal was specifically eaten inside the city walls. In fact, there's a lot said here as you read through that where Jesus says to them, go and find a, a man carrying a jar of water. Now, none of you went, oh, when I said that. In a sense, we should have. Men didn't carry water. It would have been sort of like saying, go find the man that has a purse. You'd go, yeah, it's probably pretty easy, unless you're in Europe. That'd be pretty easy to find. Men carried water in a, in a, in a skin sack. That's how men carried water. It was usually only women that carried it in a jar. 
And he goes through all of this to say, we got to find this room and the second story of the house. And why? So we can eat this meal in the city. The meal was eaten reclining. Usually you ate your meal kind of standing or, or, or squatting. Or, but when it was a leisurely meal, you kind of laid out. We sleep afterwards. They recline during. The night following the meal was spent in the city because this meal went on so late that you didn't have time to get home. And so Jesus and the disciples spent the night where? On the Mount of Olives. The meal involved several cups of wine. That was not normal. That was unusual. And each cup had a significance. You can see it in the way Luke presents it. When he says that he took the cup and he talked about the fruit of the vine. And and during the meal he took the second cup. And Matthew talks about the cup of blessing. And they're part of the, the unique cups that are part of Passover. This one's very important. They ate a meal involving the Paschal Lamb. It's very, very interesting because... In, in our translations, and it's a very good translation so that we can understand it. In verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly des- des- desired to eat this Passover. Now, literally, what is the word there for Passover is lamb. And it was a way in which the Passover was defined by one small part of it. The lamb defined the whole thing. It's kind of like when we watch football on television. What do we call it? Football. We don't call it the game that is played with, you know, goalposts on either end. And we call it football. The, the, the ball is used to describe the whole thing. Well, here the lamb is used, and the context decides whether it means lamb or the whole meal. And Jesus says, I desire to eat specifically this paschal, this lamb. The lamb was a part of it, and it was a very significant part to Jesus. Why? Because it would be the lamb of God participating in that paschal lamb. And it was a way of Jesus saying things have changed. And then just real quickly... The meal involved the singing of hymns, as Mark tells us. Psalm 118, Psalm 114. And then the meal went in a specific order. Luke spends a lot of time describing that. The meal began with thanksgiving for the fruit of the vine. And a cup of wine while, with, while bitter herbs were eaten and dipped in, in salt water. So they began with this, this cup of wine and they would give thanks for the fruit of the vine. You find it so interesting that Luke makes sure that we understand that as Jesus took that fruit, he said, I will not eat of, or I'm sorry, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until my kingdom comes. That's the first cup. Psalm 113 was then sung and the story of the Exodus recited and a second cup of wine was drunk. Jesus, I mean, Luke doesn't include that. Why? Because the focus is not on the Exodus. But it is on the Passover. Then the meal of lamb and unleavened bread was eaten 
while the symbols were explained and a third cup of wine was drunk. If you've ever been to a Passover meal, the youngest child that's capable of doing so will stand up and ask this question, why is this night different than all the others? And the elements are explained. And then finally, a final hymn is sung. Sometimes a fourth cup of wine was drunk. And then they would go out. When you read through Luke, Luke says, look at what's happening. It's a Passover meal. But here's what's so important. Jesus takes and opens the door. And when he begins to explain it, suddenly you realize we're not in Kansas anymore. Things have changed because Jesus takes that meal and he completely changes its significance. He completely changes its importance. He completely changes the focus. He says, this bread is not about leaving Egypt quickly. This bread is now my body. And this cup is no longer about God's promises of the old covenant. This cup now is about the new covenant that's in my blood. And Jesus is saying to them, all has taken place and now it's going to change. And you're no longer going to relate to God in the same way. You see, we're not in Kansas anymore. Even the way that Luke presents it as you begin there and you read down through and Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal and he tells them that I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. And then he goes on and he says, take this cup and divide it among you. I tell you, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until my kingdom comes. Then he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Do it in remembrance Then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. And when we read that, we read it through the custom of of knowing what communion is all about. And we look back on the death of Christ and we say, ah, that's what it means. But Jesus here isn't saying, look back on my death. Jesus is saying, look forward to what's about to take place. Because you need to know this to understand what's going on. We look at communion and we look backwards. For the apostles, Jesus says, let me explain what's about to come. You need to understand some things in order to make a right choice. Things have changed. In my family... When we celebrate Christmas, we have been doing this since I was young. And that is, the youngest opens all their gifts first, and all of us wait. That was my son who was moaning. Then the, then the next, and then the next, and then the next. Can you imagine if I came on a Sunday morning, I mean, I'm sorry, on a Christmas morning, and said... I'm the oldest. I'm going to open first. There would be rebellion. The youngest would scream in opposition. No, that's not how we do it. 
That's the kind of surprise you get here. For a thousand years, they've done it a certain way. And Jesus says, nope. Things have changed. There's a death coming and a resurrection and an ascension. And let me tell you what it's going to mean. Just the beginning seeds, but we're going to expand this in in what follows. We're going to expand this in the writing of Paul. We're going to expand this in the writing of the New Testament. We're going to expand this when Jesus comes to them and it says he opened up the Old Testament and he explained to them all that was necessary. So the first thing he says is that this death of mine will initiate a covenant and a kingdom. A kingdom you've been waiting for. A covenant you've been waiting for. But you need to understand something. It isn't fully completed. My blood, my death will start it. My blood and my death will initiate the kingdom. My resurrection will declare that it is true and that that kingdom has conquered and is victorious. And you will enjoy its initiation. But remember, the king has gone away and received his crown and is going to return again. And at that time, it will come in all of its fullness. That's what Jesus means when he says to them there in verse 15, when he says, I've eagerly waited to eagerly desire to eat this Passover. And I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That's not the coming of the church. That's when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on this earth as the king. And then there will be this huge feast. Similar to the Passover. But all will have been changed. It's why he says, take this cup and drink it among you. Because I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to do this celebration again until my kingdom comes. It will be initiated. Yes, it will be started. Yes, the spirit will come. Yes, but it's fullness. It's completeness. We still await. Remember, Jesus said, will you live faithfully while the king is away before he comes back? Or will you be like those subjects that reject his kingdom? He goes on to tell us about this death that is looking forward and that we now look back on. That this death is a sacrificial death. There is a price to be paid. The price is Jesus' body. The price is Jesus' blood. And when those first century Jewish men and women heard the word blood, they understood it meant his life. He's going to die. And Jesus' death is not for his sin. It's not because of what he did. But this bread is for you. This blood is for you. It becomes the foundation. It becomes the cornerstone. It becomes the means by which we come before God in forgiveness. Why? Because the penalty, the cost of our sin has been paid for. He died. In my place. 
And then Jesus' death will be God's way of establishing a new kind of relationship with him. As Jesus is ending this, as Luke is coming to the end of describing what is going on, he says, in the same way after supper, literally in the midst of the supper, in the midst of this Passover meal, when they all expected him to talk about this cup that reminds us of the old promises of God. He says, no, this cup reminds us of the new relationship with God. When he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new way to God. The new relationship. Not the old black and white relationship, but now the technicolor relationship, if you like. The Old Testament was filled with that promise. Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel After that time, declares the Lord. And he says, this is the change. No longer is the law a stone tablet outside of you. It is now the presence of the Spirit within you. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know them. doesn't mean there isn't things to be taught. It means no one's going to have to say, You know, you need to know the Lord because all who are a part of this covenant know him. Goes on to say, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness. And notice this phrase. This is where we struggle. This is where we live in a technicolor world from a black and white perspective. We fail to remember that God says, I remember your sins no more. God is no longer our judge. The judgment of God was poured out upon his son. God now is more our accountant and our father. Do you know what an accountant does? An accountant reminds me of the value of my investments. Boy, they've gone down lately. God says, let me remind you of the value of serving me. There's a time coming when we'll stand before the accountant and he'll say, this is what it's worth. Now, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful in little. I will put you over much. And God comes as a father, not as a judge. Even in our court systems, we will not allow a man who is the father of a a child to stand in judgment over them. Why? Because they can't do both. If I'm the judge, I'm looking back and saying, you did this, that was wrong, here's the punishment. And for God, it's death. Separation. Never connected again. But a father, he looks to the future and says, child, yes, you've done this, but how can I teach you? How can I mold you? Can I help you so that you can learn from this? The new covenant declares that those who have accepted Christ no longer come to God as their judge. That's been paid for. 
we now come to him and cry, Dad, Abba. Do we have sins in our lives as we're believers? Yes. But God doesn't deal with them in that sense of, you did this, now you're going to pay. How many of us think about God that way? All of us can raise our hands. The sins in our lives, God comes to us now as a father and says, child, let's work on them. I'll bring this into your life so that you can grow and you can develop. I'll bring this into your life to remind you. I'll allow these natural consequences to develop. But it's all done as a father in order that our investments might grow. In order that our relationship might be deepened. In order that our lives will count for more and more and more. You see, the problem is, so many of us in our Christian lives live in technicolor relationship, but we do so from a black and white perspective. We fail to understand it's changed. Stop trying to understand God simply through the Old Testament It's new. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new. We don't live under the the idea that we have to continue to, to bring this sacrifice over and over again and wonder if God will be pleased. One sacrifice was already made. He will eternally be pleased for those that accept him. All has changed. Ezekiel says it this way. He doesn't use the word covenant, but he's talking about the same thing. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I will give your for land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Not based on how many sacrifices I give, not based on how many times I come to the temple, not based on any of that, based on what I do with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. You see, we no longer live obeying the law. We now live emulating a life. We're no longer empowered by an external list that we need to conform to. We're empowered by an indwelling spirit that enables us, that encourages us, that lifts us up, that is there for us to to relate to and interact with. We no longer have to continually bring sacrifice For it's been paid once for all. Everything is new. And our relationship with God is based on one thing in terms of its initiation. What do you do with Jesus? And that's how Luke ends this. 
Luke ends this by saying, are you a Judas or a disciple? Do you accept the new way or do you reject it? Do you live in a technicolor relationship or a black and white? It all has to do with what do you do with Jesus? It's not what group you're a part of. Judas was a part of the right group. It's not what ministry you're doing. doing. Judas was doing the right ministries. It's not whether or not you're involved in religious activity. Judas was in the midst of the Last Supper. And there's a lot of debate as to whether or not he partook of those elements. None of that's what's important. That's a black and white world. The question becomes, what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you accept his sacrifice as a change in your relationship with God and live on the basis of that? Or will you live in a black and white world, rejecting what he has accomplished and not enjoying that relationship, but living on the outside? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Father, thank you for the challenge we find. Thank you for the sacrifice that we find here and for the willingness of Jesus to pay it all. Father, remind us that when we accept your Son as our Savior, that you are no longer our judge, but you are our Father. You are our accountant. Father, if there's someone here that's not certain of their relationship with you, we always invite them to come and speak to someone to know how they can know for sure that their sins are forgiven, that you, have, you will no longer judge them in terms of the consequences of their sin. Father, those of us who are certain of that relationship, help us to live not under the old ways, but under the knowledge that we live in grace, that grace is within us, that it surrounds us, that it is the entire foundation of our lives. Father, remind us that we are able to call you Father, and may we celebrate and rejoice in that for eternity. And we ask it all in the name of the Son who made it possible, your Son Jesus. Amen.